I'm so happy to be back again today with Brad about uh, talking about measurement again. We had part one of measurement where we went into the difficulties that uh, happen when we try to measure something precisely. And we were likening that a little bit to the quantum measurement problem, but even more, um, well, I'm gonna let Brad recap for us a little bit where we got to at the end of the last conversation so that we can move forward with this. Okay, so uh, hi everyone. We we were talking about uh, how, how everything is measured against a master, that measurement is really a comparison between two things. And um, e even when we get down into you know, measuring mechanical parts or, or assemblies or anything, it's always a comparison against something. And that, that's really how our mind functions. Um, so we kind of left off talking about uh, how, how we try to measure ourselves against the master and how, how we interact with people and, um, and how there are continuums between two binaries and that we try to navigate that and that, that we're never really all the way one way or the other, even from the subjective to the objective. But we were talking about the um, example of justice and mercy and how, and how we need to navigate that, that continuum. And so today I was just kind of hoping to, to pick up and on that and um, not so much on, on the physical world, but, but mainly on, on the spiritual realm and how, and how we measure things. And so that's kind of where, where I'd like to start. Um, I, I did want to uh, talk a little bit about Ian McGilchrist's work too, um, because I think it's very relevant to how our culture and how our society has, has gone off in this, this notion of, of apprehending everything, that everything has to be in a little box and we measure it and it's all perfect and, and we stack up all these things and we build this world around this. It's really a, a false notion, I think. Um, but I wanted to share something that personally happens to me it started when I was 14 years old and I have uh, deep debilitating migraine headaches and um, they're, they, they've come and gone in waves through the years. But what happens is I have my left hemisphere of my brain actually shuts down, not all at once, but it, it shuts down in, in stages. In the very first is a step is I, I lose the right half of my vision. And it, it's hard to describe because it's not like I just see half of things. I see half of everything. So I look at a word, I don't see half the letters. I see half of each letter. So uh, that's kind of how it starts. It goes into numbness and, and things on my right right side. And I'm, I'm trying to bring this, tying this into McGilchrist because his work mm -hmm. really, really focuses, especially his last book. Um, I started reading that. I've been listening to him and it's just fascinating. But what happens as the migraine progresses, I actually lose the ability to think in words and um, I can't speak. I obviously can't see, so I can't read. But what's really, I think is fascinating as much as I hate them and they, they do hurt. So it's, uh, <laughs> There's, there's a negative to it for sure, but I, 
I can listen to like an audiobook and completely understand what's being said, but I can't say it. I, I can't say anything. Um, so it really made me start to think about how he frames things with the left hemisphere is apprehending and, and the right hemisphere is comprehending and how listening apparently, and I'm just going by my own experience, the right hemisphere is comprehending and it can understand language to comprehend. But mm -hmm. the left, the last left hemisphere is trying to use language to apprehend. Mm -hmm. um, so it's going out and mm -hmm. it's going out, it's going out with an intention. And what is that intention? You know? Um, <clears throat> so I, it's going to kind of be part of what we talk about today. It's not going to be exclusively about that, but I, I know you had, you had somebody on your, on your, um, channel i don't know maybe a month ago or somebody that had some very debilitating mental problems that that came up with him and it really it it really makes me aware how we're not in control like something so simple can can just throw us off and how all this works together it's it's really a miracle it it, it truly is um well, so, what you're talking about with these migraines is absolutely fascinating. I had no idea. I only knew about two different kinds of migraines. The one that's just terrible pain, you know. Right. I one time was driving down the freeway and all of a sudden, visually, this didn't actually happen, but visually what happened was that the windshield shattered in front of me. Like it, oh, wow. turned into, it turned into diamonds or something. And I, I couldn't see through the windshield and it just lasted a second. And then it was like my peripheral vision was this, the whole world was just made up of diamonds. It, it's like the whole thing shattered. My yeah. visual field shattered. And fortunately it didn't last long enough to put me in danger on the freeway. <laughs> but yeah. when I got home, I called my optometrist immediately. And I said, is it possible that I'd had a, a rupture in the retina or something like that? You know, I was terrified. And I described it to him and he said, no, you've had an optical migraine. Right. Which right. I, I didn't know anything about those kinds of things, but so, it seems somewhat similar. I mean, it, it's maybe. No, it's, it's very similar. Kind of category. When, when I have the, the aura on the right side, it looks like diamonds. It, it looks like, um, I don't know. I don't even know how to describe it, but like a kaleidoscope kind of effect. Yes, exactly. Have, you know, yeah. And that that's on the right side. Um, so it's exactly what I have. And, uh, and a lot of, and when I first had these, when I was 14, went to the hospital and uh, they thought I was having a stroke. So it's very similar, very similar symptoms to a stroke. Hmm but they go away, well, at least so far they've gone away. Um, sometimes they linger for a day or two, but, um, they're not, it, it's not really bad symptoms for that long, but, um, mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's crazy. Uh, so I, I guess, you know, as I've gone through these and I went for years for, I probably I, 15, 20 years, I never had them. They just did, they went away. Um, but when they started coming back, I actually, uh, started having the, 
the inability to speak that that was like a new symptom that came in when the, when they came back when i started having them again and um that was right around the time i started training horses and what really what really i think everything happens for a reason and this anomaly come into my life but it really helped me to to focus on listening more as strange as it sounds and, and comprehending things differently. Cause I can still function when I'm in these, in this state, but it's like right brain function only, <clears throat> only it's like, it's a totally different the way I think and not being able to think in words is strange. It's very strange. So <clears throat> anyway, I, I, wanted well, I, to just... wanted, I wanted to say something about that not being able to think in words because um, when you were talking earlier you said that um, the the left hemisphere apprehends and the right hemisphere comprehends and so when you're listening and you've only got the, the right hem on me it's my right hemisphere <laughs> you've only got your right hemisphere to work with um, you're, you're comprehending what you're reading but the left hemisphere, when it's operating, it's it wants to apprehend. It wants to grab what it is that you've read and then articulate it. And you said going out with an intention. And, and I think that goes back to that old Russian proverb that I guess maybe I misheard it at some point in my life or something, but it made sense to me that the truth once spoken becomes a lie. Because... In order to yes. <laughs> speak a truth, it has to go through the left hemisphere. And the left hemisphere always has an angle. The left hemisphere always has an intention, right? Yes. So once the left hemisphere apprehends it and takes it apart and puts it back together again and sends it out, it might start inside your mind as a truth. But by the time it gets out there, it's it's at least partially a lie. Or even if it even if the words are still true, there's some intention tangled up in there that comes from, from that side of us, you know? So, right. Right. And so, so when I, when I talk about things like this, I, you know, I don't, I don't want people to think, what does Paul Vanderclay call it? Colonizing people, you know, where I'm trying to, <laughs> but I see that all the time. I mean, that's what marketing is. That's what salespeople do. Um, you know, with that, they do it to such a level you can, you can notice it. Right. But I think we all do that when we, when we're, when we're speaking, when we're trying to communicate. So I'm, I'm hoping that, that you and I, and, and whoever's listening today, uh, we can kind of try and comprehend what's going on here, because I think it's really important to, to bring everything that we've been talking about and all these discussions on the internet and try to bring it to how do we use this in life? How, how do we make this work? How can we find meaning and in, in what we've learned otherwise it's kind of useless um so so the whole idea of of what mcgilchrist's work is uh like really trying to get people to use their right brain more which i think in our culture is really hard it's really tough to do and even i know that they've and i haven't looked listened to a lot of the videos but they had the consciousness uh, conference you know up in Thunder Bay, I think it was, uh, Paul Vanderclay and Peugeot and, and John Verveke. And I don't remember the other gentleman's name, but to me, that consciousness is actually, 
I don't know if we can fully comprehend it. I don't even know if we're fully conscious, which is something you don't really hear people talk much about. But, um, but when we when we're interacting with nature and our sensing and how we're how we're perceiving things, it's really comparing frequencies of waves. I mean, that's what light is. The different colors are different wavelengths. Sound auditory is different wavelengths. I would imagine that, you know, like the sense of smell is probably some kind of a, <laughs> of a wavelength of, of, um, of the gases that your nose is smelling, that there's a, there's a differences in things at a level that, that that's what, so we're comparing. So that goes back to the measurement We're we're kind of comparing wavelengths to one another. And, and that I think that more advanced um more advanced consciousness actually can compare things at multiple levels and over time you know there's there's just all these extra um variables that can be added in so you compare a to b but then you can compare um would it be like compare a to a later you know into over time or a now to b later patterns we compare patterns we compare like in music the harmonies and how you can have um a combination of 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 a pattern that that produces something that is desirable so there's so many things that happen in consciousness and but then it gets into that 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 explosion uh, what does berbeki call it the um, combinatorial explosion right right so so it would seem to me that we have to have and and i think that's the discussion that's going on now on the internet is how how do we keep that from happening but still take into account as much as we can to make good decisions and after we talked last time i was thinking about because i've been watching other videos on the internet about like the quantum realm and how and i think glenn has talked about it the how the observer actually changes what's being observed mm-hmm. right and so when 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 we're our consciousness is dealing with these frequencies that we're interacting with we are observing something or we're sensing it however you want to look at it because it might not just be visual it could be auditory or other things and then we act so there's a decision that's made. We act somehow to it. Either we flee from it or we go towards it if we think it's food or something positive or negative. And then after we act, we get feedback to see well, the outcome of that, right? So that's a that's a that's a loop, a feedback loop that we act, we, we then we resense and act and resense. And that kind of creates the arena that we're in. And that's that kind of lines up with what they're saying with quantum observation, I think. Um, I don't know. What do you think about that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've been thinking about that for a long time, and I think you articulated it beautifully. I mean, I've been trying for a long time to figure out how to articulate it and what words to use, and I think the way that you laid it out is beautifully simple. Um, Here's something I wrote to a friend yesterday. (laughs) I'm just going to read this paragraph because I, I, I kind of 
put a lot of thought into getting the words right. But a little background before I read the paragraph, we, we just got back from a trip to Maui. And as part of the trip, my husband's company asked us to sign up for an activity each day. So <clears throat> the first day we went on an ATV ride, mm. <laughs> which is a once in a lifetime experience, as my husband said, and that was our once. <laughs> it was, uh, it certainly tested my boundaries. Let's just put it that way. Maybe I'll tell the story later on. But the <laughs> second day, our activity was to go on a hike. And they we were told it was a two and a half mile moderate hike. And that we should wear a swimsuit under our clothes because you might want to take a swim on the hike. And so I had this picture, kind of romantic picture of maybe walking along the ocean shore and climbing up a hill someplace and diving into a pool, you know. No, they drove us an hour and a half up into the rainforest and dumped us off in the wilderness. And we're crawling over vines and rocks. And um, <clears throat> it was way beyond my physical capacity. Nothing like a moderate hike. <clears throat> it was up and down hills. And here's a little background. I had my left hip replaced two years ago and just got to where I'm pretty stable with that. And then my right hip started to go bad and I'm having that replaced in two weeks. <clears throat> and here you are hiking. In the and here I am hiking through the rainforest <laughs> over roots and rocks and all this stuff. And I'm doing my best to keep up because I don't want to humiliate my husband. <clears throat> and then about halfway, about an hour and a half into this, we still are only halfway there. We come upon this cliff and the, the hike master starts climbing up this cliff. And I honestly thought he was kidding. I thought, oh, he's just shining us on here, you know, and he's going to come back and take us on a trail. No, we are supposed to go up that cliff. And, and the worst part of it is that the, the first foothold on the cliff was I'm going to say two and a half feet off the ground. And there was no handhold. There was nothing to lean on, nothing to push off of or anything. And they're expecting me to get this, my one good leg up on this thing, two and a half feet off the ground. And I stood there for the longest time. I let everybody else go by and I'm pondering, what can I do? Obviously, I'm going to be measured up against this thing and I'm going to be wanting but what, what can I do? There's no helicopter that's going to fly in there and take me out of the jungle. I had to do it. So with my husband on one side behind me and the hike master on the other side behind me, I had to get my leg up on there somehow and push up off and get them to push me into the mountain and find a handhold someplace and scramble up about 10 feet. And at that point, they did have a ropes course so that you could go the rest of the way with these knotted ropes kind of pulling yourself. Oh, so you had, but, okay. But it was grueling. It was probably 25 feet up. <laughs> and, but what was going on inside me was <clears throat> anger, resentment. Why am I even here? You know, I know I'm going to injure myself doing this. I don't measure up. I'm humiliating my husband. I'm humiliating myself. Mm. All this stuff is going through my head. And, um, uh, True confession, I didn't even once think about asking God for help. 
which would have changed the whole experience because I know, I mean, I've done this in the past. I know it would change it, but I was so wound up in my own feelings of inadequacy and of not measuring up and all that. So, so anyway, that's the background of this little paragraph. Okay. I got to thinking about the measurement problem, a big problem in quantum physics. Why is it that the probability wave collapses to a particle only when it is measured? Potentiality becoming actuality upon the action of a measurement. We could liken this to our walk through life as individuals. We are bundles of potential standing at the threshold of the future, looking out upon the plane of possibility. We have to make a choice. Jordan Peterson is good at laying out what should guide that choice. His answer is not that much different than ours. A sincere desire to follow God's call on our lives. Anyway, we make a choice and we move into the field of potential or the probability waves and instantly something particularizes in our lives. We run into a problem or we gain an insight in one way or another, we come into contact with reality. In a sense, when we make a choice to move in a particular direction, we are measured against reality and usually found wanting. But that process of measurement gives us new information. We now know how far off we are and how far we have to go, and we have new insights about how to get there. The key is having a worthy goal to start with so that the process is bearable and even sometimes can be seen as an adventure, kind of like our hike up the unscalable canyon wall in the rainforest in Maui. When I was on that hike, I was filled with all kinds of resentment for being made to be there in the first place and the pain and uncertainty it represented. But after it was finished, I realized something new about myself and my potential and God's faithfulness. That new insight gave meaning to the process and made it a worthwhile part of my life and strengthened me for service in the kingdom of God. So that's what I was thinking about. Well, that's well put. And that's true. I think it's very true. I want to add to that, though, today, um, because I think we lose sight of the fact that we're observed, mm-hmm. that that we're being observed, and that something's acting upon us. Mm-hmm it's getting feedback from us and acting on us again. So there's a feedback going both ways. Now it could be another person, you know, uh, could be a group of people, could be God, you know, there's something that, that is always so, so we're being observed into existence as well. Mm -hmm. So we kind of shape the arena, but the arena shapes us that, that, that both are happening at the same time. And, um, you know, we, we talked about this last time a little bit, how, how it's, it's, it's good to take hold of one thing, but not let go of the other. And there's verses and a verse in Ecclesiastes that talks about that, that a wise man avoids all extremes. And that has, at least in my mind, is that, that continuum between two binaries that, that you don't let go of either one, that you have to be able to move between them as you, as you need to. Um, even though, you know, not, not, uh, like the feminine the masculine you know a man doesn't always stay at the masculine side you have to be able to move to the feminine side too and so in a woman the same way um 
So we become, as, as we're being observed and, and observing, and we're in this realm, that um, that oppositional learning and a, that opponent process kind of comes into, into play. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that's always there. And, and we're trying to, to find that, that proper place to be. And that's something we touched on in the last conversation. We kind of left it there. But what I wanted to do today was talk about how um, in the book of First John, it talks about God being love, that God is love. Mm-hmm. And when Jesus was asked, what the greatest commandment was he said to love god with all your heart with all your mind with all your soul you know but if if you think about that he's he was saying to love love kind of a strange thing to say you know but it's the at least to me it's to love the process of love to love agape and that as you're trying to navigate these these continuums like if you're in a relationship with a person and I'll say this too, right now, it's like, and then he also said, the other command is like it is to love your neighbor as yourself. And that is a continuum where you're loving yourself and you're loving your neighbor. And you're somewhere between those two binaries. You're, you know, when you're setting a boundary with somebody, it's, it's, you're navigating between those two and, and both of you are working that out. But if you bring the process of agape into this, it acts as a triad. It, it, it acts as a, like a, a lens that you look through to be the observer outside of the horizontal plane. And that, that's the core to three strands that's talked about, I think, in, uh, in Ecclesiastes. I know you've mentioned this on your channel before, and that's what you have in a marriage Right. So whenever two people are in a relationship, a hierarchy is formed, ideally a hierarchy is formed and the relationship's more important than each individual, that, that, that the two become one and, and that the whole process of bringing God into it is that, that we have an observer, we have something else to look through to, to keep to keep us from going off course because all the things you talked about when you were climbing that, that cliff, we all do that. That's the first place our mind starts going is all these things. Instead of like saying, wait a minute, let's see, can, 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 am I able to look through God's eyes in this situation? You know, can, can, can I have an observer try, or maybe I need to bring somebody else in to help me see what I can't see. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that measuring up then becomes possible because there's something to, to actual a standard that you can actually look to. Am I making sense there? Oh yeah. I mean, absolutely. And, and the, I think the picture of the hierarchy, I've probably mentioned this before, but it really helps me to think visually of, of the triangle in, in the case of marriage, it's the husband and bought husband and wife are at the bottom of the triangle on either side. 
Mm-hmm. And the way to come together in your relationship is to move closer to God because then you come closer to each other. Right. So with the neighbor and yourself, the way to come closer to your neighbor would be for each of you to draw closer to God and then you come closer to each other. Um, <clears throat> but I guess in in both cases, we're actually called to to draw closer to the other, even if the other isn't making the effort, (laughs) right? Love your enemy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and sometimes your spouse is your enemy, you know? So there are times that you have to. Sometimes I'm my enemy. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) I am my own worst enemy completely all the time. Um, And, and we're called to love our enemy, whether or not our enemy loves back or or even notices you know so um so that so it's not a perfect picture but it but it does help to think about god being this one who is above our plane and giving us a focus so that we right we get our eyes in the right place right so so it becomes like a little triad well, you know yeah. so so it's a little harmony in music mm-hmm. and then that harmony that little triad if you have children, now you have this little triad, this little triad's connected to your child, and then there's a hierarchy there. And then you you know, then you have your family and your your neighbor. So it's almost like these all connect together. And I I've had this vision in my head of this image, and I don't even know where it came from. I don't know if I dreamt it or if I saw it somewhere, but it's similar to the picture over your shoulder there of the chalice playing and the and those little dots of light. And they're all connected together. And that's like the network of God's love and how, how it all is connected together. But it's all connected through these little triads of, of a neighbor. Yeah, I mean, you can substitute your wife or husband for what, you know, for, for your neighbor. It's a per, another person in you. And, and that's, I think, when God says that uh, we're two or more gather in my name, there I am. He's right there. It's, it's not way out looking for God out, you know, in the heavens, it's right there. It's close. Mm-hmm. And and we, we catch the glimpse of that at times. We do see that at times. I think, I think most people do. They may not recognize what actually is going on, but um, so that is like, the incarnation of, 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 of Christ, God in us, in that little triad of love. So, and then I wanted to just kind of go back. There's, to, there's one more way. I, I, I just want to add one more visual for the triad. And that is uh, something that was pointed out to me by um, Jeremy on the channel in the past when you think about the cross you have the horizontal which is looking up to god and then you have the vertical which is loving your neighbor so you're loving god you're loving your neighbor Mm -hmm. and then the intersection of loving god and you're loving your neighbor is is christ is right at the center of the cross Mm -hmm. um and then that reminded me very much of this uh literary device it's called a chiasm but the this literary structure of a chiasm is for the ideas to come to a central point and then from there to go out again. But it 
it creates an X. And that chiastic shape shows up in a lot of stories. If you look at the story of the hero, starting out with a, <clears throat> a wonderful life, an expansive life, everything's going along well, and then things start to happen, and his life gets smaller and smaller and smaller until it constricts down into this very painful, difficult, chaotic situation that he gets bound in and he has to go through that and then his life will open up again on the other side and so the the cross is like that where these two intersect but christ's um crucifixion is right at the center of that right so the the uh, all of history leads up to that point and then all of history comes out of that point so that chiastic structure is somehow fundamental to everything. And I think that's also a triad because you have the two cross points and the center. That's another kind of a triad. So there's a constraint. Yes, the, a constraint. The, the, the constraint causes potential on yeah. the other side. Yes, exactly. Right. So you yeah. have the cord of three strands, you have the triangle, and you have the, the chiastic structure. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. I do think I remember you talking about that before. Yeah, that that's that's very interesting. So um now one of the things that I wanted to to try and so this all sounds nice. This sounds like a great little, you know, little triangle and <laughs> this is easy right? to do, right? Yes. <laughs> so what I wanted to try and and at least share and I I tried to share this before and maybe now everything's at, at a point where there's some language that we've kind of agreed upon as, as a little corner of the internet that we, that I, maybe I can bring this, bring this to the conversation is that when, when I was training horses is it was one of the things that became instantly apparent to me when I started to, to work with the horse is that, that there's a, there's a, there's a triad involved in how you deal with the horse and that like your intention is one thing how you're communicating to the horse is another and then your actions and that so so as you're trying to navigate one of these continuums that that your, your communication and your actions they all move together so that um, and I'll give you an example and it'll make sense. And you've seen this happen when somebody's trying to discipline their child and they want their child to behave properly. So they have this intention that they're going to discipline them. And then they communicate to the child. I'm, you got to do this. If you don't, you know, I'm going to count to three, but then the actions don't, the actions don't line up with, with that communication or the intention. So so the child can see that there's a breakdown in this harmony that well, there's no harmony there. The action doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. do, do you understand what I'm saying? So well, what, I've when, seen it time and time again, because they'll say, I'm going to count to three. Huh? Okay. I, I'm going to count to three. Okay. And then they'll start counting, you know, two, two and a half, two and three quarters. <laughs> <laughs> right. But, but we do that all the time. And, and a lot of times it's maybe, maybe we don't, maybe we don't understand, understand our intentions and we're trying to communicate something to somebody and we're trying to act right, but we don't even understand what our intentions are. And so that, 
but all of these have to move together. Otherwise, I think the other person is confused. They don't know. So, so to have a loving relationship with somebody, you have to learn how to do this. And with a horse, it's like you're bringing in, um, I mean, there's a lot of intentions of why people train horses and not all of them are good, you know? Um, but even with children too, it's the same way. And I think you even mentioned in our last conversation is like, you try to weigh when you're trying to navigate between justice and mercy, it's like, what is my intention in this? Am I trying to be liked by my child or, or you know, it, what, what's going on here? And so that's where the agape comes in that, that at least to my way of thinking that that's the lens we're looking through to try and keep this harmony intact and proper. And so, um, well, the other person that you're dealing with is doing the same thing, you know, and you've seen that when you deal with people, I'm sure that their, their actions don't match their words. And when that happens, you know, that they're, you don't really aren't, you're not clear what their intentions are. Then there's a, there's a breakdown in that harmony. And I, I was thinking about how you talked to, I think it was Drew, right. About the music yes, I uh-huh. think last week. So he, you know, you talk and you showed that color, the opposing colors and how mm-hmm. it's not directly across, but it's that it's the one, three, five interval in music, you know, that makes the mm-hmm. triad chord and that, that arts the same way. There's, there's the complementary. And so, so our actions and our, our actions, our communication, I'm going to kind of make sure I come back to that too, about the communication. Cause it's not just verbal. You don't talk to a horse. They don't understand what you're saying. They're reading your body language and, and how, how you're interacting with them physically. You know, mm-hmm. um, they even, even the way you breathe will change a horse's pers- perspective on what you're doing to them or what's going on. Um, so they're, they're in tune with a different kind of language than we are, but that's one of the things that I wanted to really kind of bring into the conversation. Cause there's been a lot of talk about dial or, um, dialogos. Is that what it is? Uh, where you're there's a lot of, you know, focusing around dialogue mm-hmm. and I think dialogue is important, but if you don't have the action, then you can't really judge the intention. Mm-hmm. That you have you have to have those those so when you go out into the to the rainforest and you're doing something you're actually doing something with somebody the whole dynamic changes then if you yeah. were just <laughs> if you were just sitting in a room talking because it the physical world pushes you up against fears or uncertainty you know am i going to measure up there's there's so many things that that uh, actually doing things in the world would <laughs> what requires action that really exposes some of the things that where that 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 harmony breaks down in your in your communication your action and your intent your intention well i mean that's why community is so important that's why yes. all our talking on the internet and i've mentioned this many times before it's too easy to get all up in our heads and I have to go sometimes and after a conversation and go clean a toilet or something because I have to have contact with reality. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now how does <laughs> all this come... where the rubber hits the road? Right. Am I serving my family? Am I taking care of things? Um, exactly. Uh, it's always a balance for me as to making sure that I'm 
taking care of my my home and my husband and all of that and then having time to do the things that I want if if I if it was my druthers I would spend 24 hours a day on this I mean I'm so I'm so interested in it but also I have a passion for somehow solving my question and finding a way to articulate it and I haven't gotten there yet, so I would spend 24 hours a day researching and writing and trying to figure out a way to communicate this stuff. But then I would be neglecting my family and neglecting my home and which is the whole my purpose. neighbors and neglecting my church, which is the whole purpose of, the, of, of wanting to <laughs> wanting to find the answer, right? But it's a process of finding the answer, right? I mean, you're. And I, th one of the things that really I like about how how you bring your your guests and the people you talk to, you're you're trying to draw this thread to, between all of this and bring it together. And that's kind of that's how I think too. I don't um, I don't pretend to have the answers, but I do see how things connect together. Mm -hmm. And and so I can take other people's answers and say, well, these are very similar, and they kind of go together. So. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so anyway, I didn't want to inter interfere, but you were talking about intention, communication, and action, and how the three always have to work together in order to um, communicate properly. Well, the love properly. I mean, that I think that's really like the the whole idea of lo loving wisely is that all the, these three things are are in harmony together, and if you get one of them out, it will be noticed. It will be, it will be noticed. And when, you know, Peterson talks about speaking truthful, it's communi communicating. It may not just be verbal, but you, I could say the right thing and roll my eyes when I do it. And I mean, something totally different, right? So that's going to expose my intentions and it should, because mm -hmm. then, you know, it's, it's not, it's not in love. So it, it's, it's being attentive to these things. And when you're interacting with other people, you're paying attention to those, to those three things too. What, how, what are they communicating and what are their actions? Because we really can't know their intentions. We don't even know our own intentions a lot of times. So, but, but we try to make those judgments on, on, on what we're, what we're sensing. Mm -hmm. in, the, in the communication and through their actions so that we can say that their that their intentions are are in alignment with with the other two um so when i was talking about this last in our last conversation i was saying how like when one thing moves on this you know you're trying to like come up with this visual of of how all this works like some kind of a diagram or something but that's part of it as one thing moves, the others have to move with it. There, there's some, and if they don't, it's, it's obvious. I think it's obvious. Maybe not right away, but it, it will become obvious at some point that, that there's a, there's a breakdown in that, in that harmony. Um, so when you talk to Mike 11 about cells and how, they interact with each other. I, I kind of like, I can't help but think those cells are, are in some kind of form of agape love. They're competing with each other somewhat, but they're also looking out for each other and communicating and there's intention. There's action. 
and they all work together. And one, when something goes wrong, the other cells deal with that one cell because it's not good for the whole. That don't, I don't know what you think about that. Um, but it seems like a living organism operates in this structure. That, that a cell can't pretend that it's something else. You know, it, it's going to get found out. That's kind of what cancer is, right? So, um, yeah, I mean, when when a, when a cell decides to go off, decides <laughs> when a cell goes off on its own and just starts proliferating, um, it has abandoned its responsibility to the to great the whole. body. Yes, yeah. mm -hmm. and. Uh, I was thinking the other day about this principle, you know, one of these days I really have to sit down and try to talk to my audience about the principles and elements of art because that's my whole shtick is that I, I believe that they're kind of at the foundation of everything, all this, these design principles. But one of them is dominance. And, and in a painting, you have to have a dominance. If you don't have a dominance of something, then the whole thing just looks like wallpaper because everything, everything is equal. So you have to have something that is the most. You have to have a, one of my teachers called it Papa Mama Baby. So maybe Papa is 70%, Mama is 20% and Baby is 10%. So one, one way that this might work out is the painting is 70% dark colors, 20% light colors and 10% black or 10% very bright color. So there's some little thing that's the focal point, but there's a dominance of something that unifies the painting. The dominance unifies, but it's not a dominance like a dominance hierarchy where it's a power play because when you look at the painting, you don't even see the dominance. <laughs> what you see is the focal point. The dominance just establishes a bed, establishes a a platform for the focal point to shine. And if we think of our human bodies in that, in that yeah. articulation, imagine that most of your body is by number, most of your body is bacteria. And then by number, maybe the next category would be cells, but they're there to um, support the functioning of the whole body. And it goes all the way up. So the cells support the functioning of the, the uh, organs and the organs support the functioning of, of the whole body. But the, the head at the same time is taking care of the whole body because if the head makes bad decisions and it doesn't matter how well right. the cells are doing, the whole thing is going to die. Right. Right. So, right. so it's this, it's this perfect, um, picture of dominance being there to support the focal point but the focal point is the purpose for the whole painting so the focal point is the purpose for the whole body and also gives meaning to the rest of the body and protects the rest of the body and um so it's it's a it's a two-way feedback loop yes exactly right and that's kind of my my was talking about that about the observed and the being observed that everything is is that way, at least the way I see it. That there's, and I think that when we get 
when we get off base is when our feedback loops aren't correct. Mm -hmm. That's really where we start to veer off. Either we're not, we're not paying attention or not attending to the proper feedback loops or they're being hijacked, which that happens, you know, or we're yeah. misinterpreting the message. We can do that too. We can get a message and we can misinterpret it. Right. Well, it, and that goes kind of talking about my migraines that I have. Are we trying to to take in and comprehend the message? Or are we trying to apprehend it? Because as soon as we do that, now we're, we're distorting it. Uh, to wield it, you know, it's uh, mm -hmm. it's a different purpose. The intention changes rather than it changing us. Um, so, I, yeah, and I know sometimes when you're, you get into a heated conversation with somebody, you're listening to them with the intention to reply and not to take in what they're saying. You're, 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 you're trying to formulate the argument before you, you even listen to what they say. So, um, yeah, so this whole idea that I'm just trying to convey is how, how, how the love of God and how agape is, is intertwined in everything that's, that's good. And it's part of the fractal as it goes up too. Right. But there's also, I, and I, I fractals go both directions. I think this can, the same process can undo us as well, you know, I don't know if you listened to that um, conversation that Peterson had with uh, Matthew Peugeot. Um, it was last week, I think. Mm -hmm. They were talking about the garden, you know, and this, listening to the snake and stuff. And I, mm -hmm. I think I, I appreciate the different perspective that he brings. And he got so close to and he, Peterson even talked about this a little bit. He said, uh, is I can't remember how Peterson said it, but it was something to the effect of, is it, is it that Eve tried to become the observer? And I'm like, that, that's exactly what I wanted to say in our conversation today is that um, it's like, is in Matthew Peugeot's, how he laid it out, Adam named the animals and then eve was looking at the boundaries and the categories and the snake wasn't happy with the category and she's supposed to listen to the snake <clears throat> but the snake said that you would be like god so that that's like taking him eve eve would be taking a step above adam and and she would be the observer the sole observer of of this triad rather than god being an observer and i think when we do that, then this, this whole dynamic goes the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. So. And, and when you say the observer, you mean the one who is making the measurement, the one who's judging the master, whether, yeah, you, or not you, whether or not you measure up. Right. So, so Eve or I, me <laughs> steps into the position of being the master. Mm -hmm that things have to measure up to my expectations. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful, Brad. So that's beautiful. And when, and when that happens, then everything moves away from agape. And then that, that whole web of love that, that you could be involved in starts to unravel. 
because you're you're not in the proper position and that's that's one of the things that that i've been wondering about with um with even the dialogos and stuff and 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 verveki's attempt to try and create a religion that's not a religion it still seems to be it seems to me that there's a a desire to be above looking down at it and i don't think that that's that's proper that there there needs to be something outside that that observes and that we have to be willing to be shaped by that that and we are being shaped by something outside all the time and we have to acknowledge that and and in in a lot of ways surrender to that is uh yeah i think that's i think you hit on exactly what's missing um in a, in a lot of the conversations is this we have to be willing to be shaped by that if i put myself in the position of being the master that everything has to measure up to which i do a thousand times a day I'm we all do judging, yeah. i'm always judging that other people aren't measuring up to whatever my expectations are what i'm really doing is bringing everything down to the lowest common denominator because i don't know I don't know the answers. I don't have an answer right. to anything, right? And uh, I don't know what's good for me. If if I did what I thought was good for me, I'd probably sit in a chair and read books all day and eat bonbons, and I'd end up eight hundred pounds, and I my brain would be fried. And you know, um, so so the whole idea that that we can come up with some idea of how people might act together in community to the benefit of everybody without that outside view that God gives us that meta, you know, I think it's um, in chapter four of Hebrews, it actually uses the word meta in reference to the perspective that Jesus has, that he sees, he sees above, he sees beyond what, what we can see. Right. And, uh, what was the other thing I was thinking about in reference to that? Paul Vanderclay calls it the monarchical vision where you're, you're above looking down. Well, when we take the monarchical vision, yeah, yeah. I mean, we take it, it's a monarchical vision, right? But when God takes it, it's just reality. It's just truth <laughs> because he has, he has a vision of, of wholeness and love and goodness. And, uh, and so then when we, when we participate in that and when we put ourselves in a position where we're willing to be measured by that. And then if we're, if we're a little bit short, we're willing to have something added on. And if we're a little bit long, we're willing to have things carved off so that we can fit that measure that he has for us. Then he knows what's best. We don't know what's best. So this whole thing of trying to imagine a world where there is no God outside you know i mean they're always talking about yes there's the transcendent there's the imminent there's a god outside there's god inside transcendent and imminent yes but he's also as close to us as breathing right he's also there with us every moment when we're in conversation with another person when we're when we're praying or just when we're trying to help another person he's always there he's holding our hand he's carrying us i mean to imagine a world without that is to say i am the one that's going to decide or some elite group is going to decide 
That's the totalitarian impulse. Did you see that conversation that Jordan Peterson had with Alex Story on yes. the totalitarian impulse? Yes. So good. Yes, it was. It was very yeah. good. Yeah. It was very good. And you, you know, you made me think of something and I'll, I guess I'll share it. Um, you know, when I was, I was raised in a home that was fundamentally atheist and I mean that in, in, in a derogatory way, mm -hmm. <laughs> it, it, people can be fundamentalists about atheism just as much as they can be about theism. And uh, when I got to the point where my first daughter was born, that is, that is the point where everything, all the constraints come together one of many times it's happened, but it's where everything came together. And I knew in my heart that I could not love that daughter, my daughter, the way she needed to be loved, that I had no capacity of doing that. That's what set me off starting to read the Bible, starting to look into. And when I started reading the Bible, it was almost like, like Tom Holland has, you know, he talks about, I'm like, our whole culture is built on this book. You know, I was taught my whole life. It was just bunk. It's like, well, why, why is everything revolve around this? Our, our legal system, our values, everything come from this. So, so that, that, that changed me and, and set me off on this, on this journey to, to look for how, how to build love. How can I love her? You know, um, and it's so beautiful now she has children and to see her the same way with her kids, trying to be that parent and loving them the way they need to be loved, you know? So um, that's the way, that's that web of love. You know, Glenn talks about the, 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 the symphony of, how does he put that? The symphony of decisions choices over time, choices over time. So so love is like a symphony of proper relational choices over time. That's what love is. It's, it's, a, it's that all, all of those triads you play and, and sometimes you have to go off and do this riff, like the guy playing Mozart, was it mm -hmm. you were talking about earlier, you know, and you, sometimes you have to improvise, but you have some enough of an understanding of how it works that you can do that. Um, so I really think that, that for me, and it's something that even with church, how, how, when we go to church, church's role in the culture has been replaced by the government in a lot of ways, as far as that, as far as activities and what, what we're supposed to do. So we, we don't have the. We can say the words and even have the intention, but we don't have the action involved to really refine that harmony to know how to, how to act in the world. Um, at least I've, I've found that. I mean, some churches probably do, but um, most of the churches I've attended, they're just not, they're not involved in, in the community much. Um but I think also if you're, if you're doing something, it has to be something real. There's something that really matters. Um, Cause I, I was involved with a lot of youth groups and, and stuff when I was younger. Uh, and 
just doing activities with the kids. It's, it's not something that really matters. You know, a lot of it, it's, uh, you're, I, you're couldn't, I couldn't agree more. I mean, that, that was distressing to me to see the difference between my, my, uh, my older daughter, when my older daughter was in um, youth group, we were in a church where they really emphasized that this was worth something giving your life for. <clears throat> and uh, they would have activities that they would do together, like going and, and trying to share the gospel with people or, or going and doing some sort of service activity in the, in town or something, helping other people. And there was a lot more of that. And then when my younger daughter came along and she was in youth group, it was all about, I don't know, they'd have, I can't even remember the names of the parties, you know, like duck lips parties. And there's all these just weird activities that they would do that were super fun for the kids. As though that's going to draw people into the group. But, but if you don't give them something that says, this is worth giving your life for, then right. there's there's absolutely nothing to hold on to once the fun and games is over then what you know um i think that's a that's a big uh part of the meaning crisis is is the is the lack of of action i'm a, do you did you remember uh do you remember the unabomber that yes uh -huh. and T ted kaczynski did you ever mm -hmm. read his manifesto it was they published it's, it in the newspaper uh, back. I just scanned a little bit here and there. It would you know, obviously his conclusions were way off base. But he mentioned something in there and it was a at least a term that I kind of I I understood what he was saying. He he said that society, because the technology has lost meaningful activity and that we replace it with surrogate activities. And I don't think that's his own thing. I think he that was from somebody else, but, um, that kind of stuck with me when I read that. And it's like, you know, that is kind of true because if it's not something that's a necessary activity, you deep down know that it's not meaningful. Mm -hmm. Like you can consume yourself with doing your yard work and it could be really nice and stuff, but is that really something that brings deep meaning to, to, to a person? Mm -hmm um where how about if you were doing somebody else's yard work potentially yeah well I mean, there's a guy that i follow on twitter that i really like i can't remember his name right now but <clears throat> he started a thing where he just decided he was going to mow lawns for people who were incapable of mowing their own lawns and so he started going around and you know mowing lawns for disabled veterans or for elderly people and then he kind of thought, well, I should let somebody else in on this because it's so joyful. And so he came up with this idea for young people that he would challenge any young people to take the 50 yard challenge and they could sign up. And if they would agree to mow 50 yards for disabled people or you know people who weren't able to mow their own yards in their communities, he would provide them with a new lawnmower and uh, set them up so they could have a little gardening business. And some people came along and said, well, we'd like to support you financially if you're going to do that. And so now he goes to all 50 states and he delivers these lawnmowers to these kids who've completed the 50-yard challenge. And so 
Right. That's meaningful because that's building something into the lives of these young people to say, I want to serve. I want to help. I want to make my community better. And that that's, that's a great example because that's where I was going to kind of go is that we need the the meanings there. There are meaningful things. It's everywhere. We have to, we have to go out and do it and find it and encourage others to come along. And there's meaning right inside your own family. There's, there's needs there. There's, there's relational needs there that, that we can, we can engage in. Mm-hmm. Because that's really what it's all about is, is how, I mean, value is all about how, how things relate and how we relate to human beings is really where God is. That's where we find him anyway. So, I mean, it's like a call to action, I guess. I'm probably talking to myself as much as anybody else. Well, we have to do that, don't we? I mean, yeah. I have to talk yeah. to myself. <laughs> yeah. Um. Right, right. It's not, I guess it's just not, it's not enough. To, what was it in, in, in James that faith without deeds is dead? And that's kind of going back to what I was talking about before. You know, it's like you can say the right things and you can pretend you have the right intentions. But if you don't have the deeds that go along with those other two, then your intentions are exposed. It's not it's not real because love is going to provoke you to do those things. Mm-hmm. It's going to provoke action. And then that action brings meaning, you know, that encourages and and then it, it also demonstrates to other people how to live in this world. And, and it all, it all, it is all in, in the real world too. You know, I imagine you can do some things online. I'm not trying to totally discredit doing, uh, you know, conversations with people on, online, if they're struggling or helping them out, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of good that happens too, but it's not, uh, it's not enough. At least I don't think it is. So. Yeah, I struggle with that. I mean, it's the, a lot easier. <laughs> the better, <laughs> sure. if you provide really good content, then what you're really doing is encouraging people to spend more time online. <laughs> so, it's, yeah, it's yeah. complicated. It is. It is. That's why I never started the YouTube channel. I, uh, I mean, I obviously have one so I can track different channels and stuff and follow, but I never really put out any content of my own. Um, I don't know. So I think that, uh, I think there's something to not being the observer to, to surrendering to somebody outside being the observer. I think that's really important. That observer helps to create who we are. And I think that's important too. And then we have to be able to let go or add like you said, sometimes you need trimmed off and sometimes you need to, to, uh, augment what you, what you are mm-hmm. with, with some other, other skills or, or, you know, the fruits of the spirit that, that, that's something else that really had just this past week. It kind of grabbed me again. It's, it grabs me over and over through, through the years, but like being, being plugged into this network is like being plugged into a vine and jesus talks about being in the vine you're going to bear fruit right 
and but fruit isn't for us to eat it's it, fruit we, we fruit tree doesn't grow tree or a fruit tree doesn't grow fruit so it can eat its own fruit it's for others to eat right mm -hmm. and love joy peace patience kindness goodness they're, they're all relational too and they all have to do with you giving that fruit that it's available for somebody else that so like the guy mowing lawns and the joy that comes out of that and the love that the people feel from him sharing that joy with them and with the young people there's there's fruit on that vine and that's something that we need to be striving towards well and i, I like what you said about the fruit is not there for us to eat and T times can come in your life when you you can't see the benefit of your fruit to other people right you know missionaries have gone sometimes to countries and labored there for 40 years and never seen any they think they've never seen any fruit and then they leave and they come back to the united states and retire or whatever or they die and then things just begin to flourish and, you know, a tremendous Christian community grows out of that because what was left was a seed. So even with a tree, if, if even if the fruits aren't eaten and the fruits just fall on the ground, they fall into the ground and then they, they sprout up as a seed. And then that seed grows a new tree with, you know, many, many trees maybe with more fruit. That's the, inter the really interesting thing about a tree, right? Is it produces way more seed than to just reproduce itself. It produces oh, enough seed yes. to make many, many trees with many, many, many more seeds. So um, oh, we don't, the, the, the thing is, we don't know what our fruit is accomplishing. Right. It's a sym we, symphony over time. Yeah. Right? And, and so if we, if we get all angsty about that and say, oh my gosh, I'm not producing any fruit, then immediately you stop producing fruit because you're not the same open, visible person anymore. We need to just trust that God is producing fruit in us and God is using that fruit and, and he's going to use it in whatever way is best for his world. You know, I mean, really, I mean, my rock is that God is good and he knows what he's doing. <laughs> you know, and even our willingness to accept fruit from others. Yes. That's, that's something else that, that I struggle with. Um, you get in the wrong frame of mind and, and you can't even see that it's there, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, and so, so that loving your neighbor as yourself, sometimes, sometimes you need help sometimes you got to let that neighbor help you mm -hmm. otherwise otherwise that little triad of harmony isn't working right either and mm -hmm. and that that's the 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 rugged independent person that i am <laughs> i want to take everything on my, my on my own in my own time when a lot of times there is something that i need and could have a lot sooner than later but i fight it because of pride mm-hmm and then what you're also doing then is stealing the opportunity that the other From person them. has to, yeah, exactly. Right. It took me a long time to and learn that, that. And that discourages them. Mm -hmm. Right. 
So that's almost like punishing them for doing the right thing. Peterson talks about that, you know, that's the yeah. best way to, to, to just quench proper behavior. And if somebody has something for you like that, and that that's where we need to, to, to be aware and, and take it um, mm-hmm. for their sake and yours. So yeah, it's pretty interesting when you think about this thing and like this, this picture of, of this, uh, of this network. It's like these little nodes of, of, uh, of love, a little node of light, a little triad and how they're all connected together. Um, I don't know. I've been having some pretty interesting thoughts about that over the years and you can see it. You can see it sometimes. I don't know. It's just as plain as day to me that it's there. Well, I think it goes all the way down to the very fundamental basis of the universe. I'm, did you ever? Yeah. I'm. I'm not saying that I. I'm not trying to get people to watch my channel or anything, but I'm just wondering yeah. if you ever watched the little solo thing I did where I talked about love being the one rule, mm-hmm. and I was talking about Wolfram's model, right, of fundamental physics and. And really that that maybe love is the one rule that ties all the nodes and edges together, you know. Um yeah, I think because I think it's it all is. relational. Yes. Even Carlo Rovelli is this physicist who insists that everything is just relational. That the I don't necessarily agree with him about this, but that in, in his model, even the particles aren't like what you would say real. It's just the relationships between particles that create reality. And I mean, I certainly see that in art. It's uh, it's the relationships. You know, you were talking earlier about um, wave, that what we're doing really in life is we're just comparing frequencies or wavelengths. That's yeah. how we see or that's how we hear. That's how we sense is by comparing wavelengths. Well, when you're making a work of art everything has to every stroke has to compare to the stroke before am i looking for something lighter or darker am i looking for something more saturated or less saturated am i looking for something that's um the same or different so there's just all these comparisons that have to be made between these wavelengths but if i if i want to make a um let's say a tan area appear to be white, all I have to do is put something really dark next to it because that darkness next to that tan will make the tan just blaze out of the, of the picture. So it's all in what's next to it. It's all in the relationships that everything has with everything else that creates the illusion, right. I guess, if you will, <laughs> of what, what you're trying to say. So, our relationships that we have with each other are like that. And they're all in context. We're all in context with each other. And, and that context is vitally important, but that context is based on the triad that you were talking about of our intentions, our communication and our action. Right. Yeah. It's, um, I, thinking about like painting for example or like what i do what i do on when i design 
but we'll use painting because you do that and i've tried to paint before so you have a canvas that's white when you're looking at that white canvas i guess it doesn't mm -hmm. have to be white but if to assume it's a white canvas canvas that is reflecting off a quantum field all the wavelengths that we sense so we're, we're actually seeing every color and mm -hmm. when you take your brush and you dip it in blue paint and you paint on that it's actually subtracting everything but the blue it's mm -hmm. a sub it's a subtraction process not actually you're not adding blue you're subtracting mm -hmm. everything but blue but that's not how we perceive it at all we think we're painting it blue right mm -hmm. so what's really going on in the background you know it's uh i don't know how relevant that is does that change how you paint if you knew that <laughs> You were subtracting everything. But well, blue. it 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 reframed something for me right now because sometimes I will paint a canvas orange or I will paint it blue before I start making a painting, and I will do that specifically to narrow my choices because otherwise, starting with the white canvas is combinatorially explosive. Yeah, so, so you're narrowing, right? You're narrowing. I'm narrowing it down. So, so now I have something to fight against. I have something to compare against. When I have a white canvas, I can't, but you just opened that up for me. The reason I can't is because that white is everything. Yeah. And everything is too much. It's actually chaos. Yeah. So, so, you, so have to, you have to carve away everything down to something that's manageable. Right. And that's, that's pretty much in the design process. What I do is, you know, I, the screen on my computer it's just a white background and it's just mm -hmm. the the possibilities of what i design is everything mm -hmm. so i i start by bringing in the the product or the part that i'm going to start either inspecting or you know it's going to be assembled and i put that in space so now this is i want to build everything around this piece mm -hmm. what's, what's going to happen to it and and our life is like that too the difference is that like you were talking about earlier with the missionaries is the time element and God, God works in decades mm -hmm. sometimes. And we, we don't see when we're, when we're putting the, these little pieces together and then we don't see it go anywhere, but it goes somewhere. I, I've had things come back to my life that I didn't even, I didn't even know about something that I did and how I interacted with somebody. I wasn't really even like cognizant of it. I wasn't even aware of it. And later, it came back and it just blew me away. It's like, really? You know, did you ever have that happen? It's, yeah. uh, yes. And so it's, it's amazing how our interactions with this world and how the, our observations and our, you know, and what we're doing in this arena is shaping someone you don't even really know that it's happening at all. This uh, is why when Jordan Peterson used to talk about how everything matters. You, you have a choice. Either nothing matters, in which you can be completely nihilistic and just give up, or everything matters. And when everything matters, that's pretty scary. So if right. somebody comes to you and says, you know, this thing that you did back then really had an impact on my life and it changed the course of my future, right? Then I have to think about all the things that I didn't do that I could have done that could have had this positive impact, right? Or all the times that maybe I did something that had a negative impact that I'm not aware of because those people haven't come back to me, you know? So yes. Yeah. It's kind of terrifying when, but, when you have those experiences. 
but even that could be turned into good. That's the story of Joseph, right? So, um, and I've seen that happen as well. You know, things that I completely messed up on and it, it actually was turned into something positive. Well, and, and so I know the people, I know the things that people did to me where they really messed up that have certainly worked for positive in my life. Right. So, right. right. And it comes back to the fruit of the spirit in them being forgiven, forgiving towards me or me being forgiving towards somebody and how, how that can change the arena that you're in mm-hmm. because it's, it's taken the anomaly and changing it into something that, that puts everything on a different trajectory. Yeah. So, so that's where the where the agape comes in because that isn't like our nature to do that, and that's the self sacrifice. So wh- when you when you define, could you define agape the way you think of it? That might be a good place to end with a <laughs> good definition of agape. So it's it's love. It's love that's looking out for the individual and the whole over time. It's that symphony of 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 proper relational decisions over time. I think that when Glenn said that in his one um, talk he had with you, man, did that capture me. It's like that is so, and he's talking about computation, but if you think like agape, that that is what it is, you know, and when you, when you listen to Paul describe that or really try to understand or comprehend what Paul's saying in, in Corinthians 13, first Corinthians 13 about love and, and what it is, you know, that all those things about being patient, you know, like that, that triad. And sometimes that, that this, this can't happen right now, whatever's going on, we have to be patient and see what happens down the road. So that to me is like I think a good definition of agape. Mm-hmm. What what's your definition? Do you have one? Oh, I I like your definition. The the one that I've I, is it um, is it Verveke that says it's willing the best for the other. Um, I guess whatever whoever came up with that. The thing I like about that is it it does have to do with the will. Because we can't always we can't always want the best for the other, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um, I should want the best for the other, but I don't always. But but if I if I determine in my heart that I want to, um, how do I put this? That the actions. That love is an action. Love is an act. Love is not an intention. Intentions are not enough. And love is not even words. That's not enough. But love is an act. And that that the actions matter. And so even if I don't feel agape, if I act with agape, then God is always faithful to bring the feelings along with it. God is always faithful to make a space for the intentions and the communication to catch up with the action. Because I think a lot of life works the other way. I have an intention and then I communicate my intention and that sort of 
puts me on the hook for acting action get right. the act out yes. there right because i i put myself I, on the hook now right? and now you don't know how to do it yeah right so yeah. god god help me love my little daughter yeah that's exactly how i got to that conclusion i could say yeah. all the words i could have the intention if i don't act it out to her it's yeah it's meaningless it's just a a gong right a clanging gong <laughs> yeah um so so that's good i i really think i want to jump back if i could to our last conversation i talked about measurement and how we compare things right and how love or, or how like even math there's an equal sign there's two sides and we're comparing one side to the other that's what that's basically what math is Mm -hmm. all these equations as long as they could be they all are one number and all this equation it's they're equal or they're not equal um but i was wondering too when i was thinking about this and, and i thought about this a lot too about how love loving your neighbor as yourself can can an equal sign be in there is, is it is it not is it not a, a comparison isn't that what Jesus is saying? It's a, it is a comparison in a way. And that if somebody doesn't love themselves enough to set a boundary, they're actually not loving the other person either. Mm -hmm. And there's a real truth in that. Now we could take that loving yourself, obviously in a, in the wrong way, <laughs> take it where, you're putting the boundary too close to the other person, right? So that finding where that needs to be is a negotiation. And if you're not strong enough, and, and that's one of the things I love about Peterson, and he talks about people that are um, high in uh, agreeability, they're going to struggle with this. They, you know, they, they can, they have a hard time saying no. They have a hard time setting that boundary. So agape is is dealing with that side of it as well. It's dealing with both sides of the equation. It's being willing to die to yourself for the other, but also being willing to stand up to your, for yourself for the benefit of the other too, and knowing when to do which. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, that's where the devouring mother comes in, right? Because if... Um... If love is only a one-way thing and and I don't have a responsibility also to myself, then I can give so much of myself that there's nothing left of me. It becomes parasitic. And then the all of that I'm giving of myself to that other person is stealing the agency of that other person from being able to do the things that they should have been able to do for themselves because I'm taking care right. of everything, right? Right. So love is a matter of also seeking wisdom to, to love well. And um, yeah, yeah, it's a deep well. Right. You know, that's one of the greatnesses of God is that he's given us this deep well to draw from. There's so much to, uh, to contemplate and so much to act out. And, right. And and hopefully all of us here in this little corner, we can love each other well and we can help each other to to act well, to get out there in the community and be a part of it. And right. 
because that that's really where it's going going to make the biggest difference yeah this has been great brad i don't know if you got were able to talk about the things you wanted to talk about because i jumped in and said an awful no, oh no no this is great i mean we can digest this and talk again in the future if you want uh but that sounds, that sounds good I, I really like that where your mind goes it helps me think things through so I, yeah and i i hope i hope more people get engaged in your channel i, th I think you have one of the best channels on the on youtube i i, I really enjoy it I, I like the effort you put into it um and the and the different guests you have and how they interact um and it's it's really good there's just been times when you've had a guest on and it's exactly what I needed to hear that week. You know, it's like, well, it feels like family to me. And, and even the commenters, I, they just feel like family to me. So I really appreciate everybody. Yeah. 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 And it's good. And there's a lot of really, really good comments too. Yeah. You know, really make you think. Yeah. So, well, this has been right. great. Let's, let's do this again someday. And, uh, I'll get back to you after I finish my surgery. <laughs> okay. Well, I hope it all goes well. It, when is that going to be in November? Uh, well, it's so funny. It was October 25th, and then they rescheduled it to October 10th. And so I thought I was going to have to cancel Ooh. all these conversations. And then two days before, they got back to me, and they said, we're rescheduling it out of November 8th. So, okay. so it's November 8th. That's the big day. All right. Well, I'll keep you in your in my prayers. Thank you, Brad. I appreciate that. All right. Have a great day. You too. Bye now. Bye bye.